Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. We'll get there in a moment. If you don't have one, there's some at the back we can lend you. If you don't own one, you can have it. Take it away. Read it. We believe it's the word of life. I was so tempted to just go off on a spontaneous sermon about Jesus, but uh, we'll save that for next week. We are in this six-act drama called God's Unfolding Story, and uh, we are in today the third act called Israel, or if you like, the kingdom begins again. If you were here over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at creation and then the fall. The talks for that are online. And at the back and online are some personal follow-up resources that we've been putting together to help you take it a little bit further and apply it to your lives. So do get those as well. So far, we've looked at just the first 11 chapters in the Bible, uh, and we're going to look at the rest of the Old Testament this morning between now and whenever I'm finished. So hang on tight. We've seen that we were created to be in a world of shalom, but find ourselves in a world of chaos and disorder. We were blessed by God, but that blessing was rejected. Sin and death have entered the world And as a result, everything is slowly and steadily disintegrating. Last week, if you're here, hopefully you'll remember that in Genesis 3, I showed that uh, there's a glimpse of grace before Adam and Eve even leave the garden, where God promises that he will do something about the mess. We saw that that promise is that one will come who will crush the snake and reverse the curse of sin and death, and you'll start to see something more of that thread through today, I hope. We obviously haven't got time to look at everything in the Old Testament. We could be here till about 2020 if we did that. But we're just going to, I guess, tease out one main plot line and look at one person in particular just for a moment to help make sense of it from one particular perspective. Before we get there, just a few other things to help us get to Genesis 12. Yet when the gates of Eden close behind Adam and Eve, they don't cease to be what God has created. The effect on, of the fall on, on us is it's not that we stop being human. It's just that how we're human changes. Genesis 4 and 5, if you were here last week, I referenced this real quick, tells the story of the escalation of sin and the devastating effect it has on humanity and on creation So much so that by Genesis 6 we read this, that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. It's probably a slight exaggeration to make a point. And then verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings. That's what our sin does to God. And it says that actually, verse 7, the Lord says, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. Now, as you know, God ultimately doesn't go that far, because uh, grace somehow kicks in. Mercy triumphs over judgment, even at that point in the story that we are part of. Instead, he identifies Noah Now, Noah wasn't necessarily the best qualified person, but there was something about him that God could use. His face was facing in the right direction. That's a clue there to how God will work with you. And he sets in motion a plan to redeem his creation plan, to get it back on track. And so, Genesis 9, we see this instruction, be fruitful and increase in number. 
It's the same thing that Adam was told. Noah is to be a new Adam, tasked with filling the world with God's good creation. Uh, Theologians talk about the covenant with Noah. We have a sign of that, don't we, which is the rainbow in the sky. It's a covenant actually more with creation than Noah himself. We need to be really clear about that for reasons that will become apparent in a moment. What God is doing is making a covenant with his creation, the creation he made to be very good. And he's saying, actually, despite the fact that you're not, I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not going to give up on my creation project. So God makes a new start with Noah. He's commissioned as a second Adam, and God promises never again to curse the ground or to destroy living creatures, which is what we see in Genesis 3. But that's only after a terrible judgment. The flood God sends upon the earth is catastrophic. It's universal in scope. Think of it as an uncreation ahead of a recreation. He starts again. Now if you follow through the rest of uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you'll see that they definitely increased in number. But that's all. The descendants of Noah end up settling in the land rather than extending into it. They end up building the Tower of Babel, this monument to the perennial human desire to build our own kingdom apart from God. Genesis 11 says this. This is how they were thinking. We can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And yet we're called to make a name for him, aren't we, and him alone? That's what it means to be the image bearers of God. And so God steps in, he confuses their language, and he scatters them. We'll come back to that when we look at Pentecost. And so here we are in Genesis 11, and I hope if you've been tracking the story, you're kind of left thinking, well, now what? Like, what's going to happen next? In Genesis 12, uh, everything changes in the narrative, and theologians would say, really, that the first 11 chapters was one bit, and then you have what's now known as the patriarchal narratives that take you right through to the end of chapter 36. And the narrative focuses in, initially, on one individual, and the whole time frame slows down. Genesis 1 to 11 covers millions of years, and here we are suddenly in more of what we might know as human history, not theological history. God initiates this new approach to reaching humanity and restoring his blessing on them. Once again, like Noah, he chooses one man through whom he will reach the whole world. But the nature of the covenant is different this time. This is very much a covenant with Abraham as a person, him, not just through him to everybody else. Again, Abraham... Not necessarily the obvious choice, but someone that God decides he can work with. So have a look, Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, let's not get into that, he changes his name, doesn't really matter for today. Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. God calls Abraham out of where he was into a new land. And what you need to know is that the place he was living in is a place called Ur, you are. They kept it simple in those days. And it was the equivalent of, say, today's New York or Tokyo or London. These global cities that are a center for cultural engagement. They were, for many people, the places you'd want to be. Abraham is in the thick of a place like that. And yet here he is called to leave all of that behind and go into a land that God will show him one day. 
Notice that what he's being asked to do is actually to give up the symbols of security and autonomy with which the builders of Babel had sought to shore up their own identity. There's a huge step of faith here required by Abraham. And wonderfully, for the sake of all humanity, Abraham says yes. He trusts God. And so the question today is, why Abraham? What's the covenant? What's going on here? I want to suggest to you that when we get our heads around Abraham, we can get our heads around actually the rest of the Old Testament and ultimately the rest of the Bible and therefore our own experience of God. The answers are in verses 2 and 3, so here we go. Here's the covenant promise. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is the promise that God makes to Abraham. And we'll come back to the covenant again in a moment. One uh, theologian says this, it is impossible to overestimate the importance of these words for biblical theology. They look back to Genesis 1 and 2 and they inspire the whole plot of the whole Bible. In other words, if you want to understand the rest of the story, you have to grasp what's going on here. Through Abraham, God is birthing a new nation, ultimately called Israel, which is to be God's own people in the land amongst all these other people groups in the land. And through this nation, God intends to bring blessing to all the other peoples of the earth. We should be hearing echoes of Eden here. God's people, placed in the land, called to live in a certain kind of way, blessed by him to be a blessing, sent by him into the land to extend that world into the world around them, so that people would know who God is, what he's like, what he's doing. God, in other words, invites Abraham to pick up the task of co-creating and co-ruling with God that Adam and Eve fail at, that Noah fails at. So one theologian, I think, is bang on, Gordon Wenham, he says this, the promises to Abraham renew the vision for humanity set out in Genesis 1 and 2. He, like Noah before him, is a second Adam figure. Adam was given the Garden of Eden. Abraham is promised the land of Canaan. God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply. Adam is promised descendants as numerous as the stars in heaven. God walked with Adam in Eden. Abraham was told to walk before God. Abraham is seen as the answer to the problem set out in Genesis 1 to 11. No pressure, Abraham. Genesis 15. Just turn over, have it open in front of you. This is the account of the the covenant-making ceremony that God has with Abraham. We'll not delve into it. It gets a bit messy, but I want you to just notice one thing as we go. God chooses to enter into this particular covenant with Abraham in a way of saying, look, that promise I made to you in Genesis 12, let's have a ceremony to enact that and to enshrine that within human history, to make it something binding and permanent that will shape our relationship and what I get to do through you. He binds himself to Israel. He binds himself through Abraham to all humanity and to the world through him. And he does it forever. Because covenants between God and his people are binding. The closest thing we have today is marriage. 
one of the great joys of being an Anglican minister is I, I get to stand about here with a, a man and a woman here and I help them make a binding covenant commitment to one another. They make their vows, their promises before Almighty God. And then I declare that which man has put, that God has put together, let no man pull asunder. Because they're binding, two-way promises forever. And it liberates these two people to be free to become all that God has for them. That's the theory. It's much harder in practice, right? Those of you who are married, you're all nodding. Here's the best definition of covenant that I could come up with to help us make sense of this. A covenant is when you say, I will be to you as I should be, whether or not you are as you should be to me. I will be to you as I should be, whether or not you are as you should be to me. That's what covenant is. God says to Abraham and to all humanity, I will be to you as I should be, whether or not you are as you should be to me. Pray for those of us who are married. It's hard, right? It's the binding nature of this commitment that God makes to Abraham that I think unlocks uh, the rest of the Old Testament for us. God makes a, a covenant commitment with Abraham so that through humanity he can outwork his purposes for creation. So William Dumbrell says this, what we are being offered in these few verses is a theological blueprint for the redemptive history of the world. This is how God's going to do it. This is what we see over and over again now through the rest of the scriptures and through the rest of human history, the rest of the church's story. I haven't got time today other than just to give you the headlines to show you how what this uh, this promise to Abraham uh, plays itself out through the Old Testament. But just hang on tight if you can. Some of you will know bits of the story. Some of you won't. We'll get to that in our year of biblical literacy reading plan at some point and you'll be like, oh yeah, that's the covenant thing Rich was talking about. Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac. That alone is a miracle story. Uh, Redemption of creation happens there. She's too old. Theoretically, but actually somehow God works in her. She gives birth to Isaac. God blesses Isaac. Isaac has twins, Jacob and Esau. There's a whole story around who gets Isaac's blessing. Jacob wrestles with God, is renamed Israel. He has 12 sons. They form 12 tribes. God blesses them. They're the people of God in the land, called to live in a certain kind of way, to usher in recreation. And by the end of Genesis, Abraham and his descendants have indeed produced a lot of people. But then as we head into the book of Exodus, we find that the descendants of Abraham are not a nation. They don't have any land and they don't seem to have a close relationship with God. Things have gone awry again. Before too long, they find themselves enslaved under Pharaoh in Egypt. But notice this, Exodus chapter 2 The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He remembers that he said, I will bless you to be a blessing. And so God identifies another man to lead the people, Moses. Can you see the pattern now? (laughs) Picks a person recommissions them. Moses eventually gets his act together, leads the people out of Egypt, and God crushes Pharaoh 
There's a glimpse there of what's to come in Jesus Christ. Israel finds itself wandering in the wilderness, trying to reach the promised land, the land that Abraham was told he would reach, right? God gives them the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, which is essentially, here's the code on how to actually live this out. If you live the Ten Commandments, you're fully human. As God intended, you're essentially redeeming humanity. If you do those ten things, you're on track to being like Jesus. How's it going? I don't think anyone's murdered recently, not that, not that I'm aware of, but there's a whole load of other things in there that are pretty tough, right? And so here we have Exodus 19. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, remember? It's two-way, mutually binding. If you keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you particularly will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Language that we hear again in the New Testament in 1 and 2 Peter. And so it suddenly seems like God's got things back on track. All that Israel now needs to do is be obedient. Simple obedience. What could go wrong? William Drumble again uh, says this. The history of Israel from this point on is in reality merely a commentary upon the degree of fidelity, that's faithfulness, with which Israel adhered to this Sinai-given vocation. We know, don't we, that they don't obey. Some are faithful, but on the whole they rebel, they complain, they fail to keep the commandments. I I, I was struck by this as I was preparing. Notice, if you know the story, if it's open in front of you, they, they start to break the Ten Commandments before Moses even gets back down from the mountain. They're fed up waiting. So they make a calf-shaped idol out of gold. Exodus 32, verse 1, records this story. It says, that's not on the slide, it says, um, they've forgotten who he is already. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Like, uh, short-term memory. It's like a true story. They're like, holy cow! You know? That joke was better in my head. Um, Obviously. We worship you. So Moses comes down. They're like, holy cow. And he's like, no, holy God. And uh, Moses has this nightmare trying to get the people to the promised land. I've said before, it's easier to get the people out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of the people, right? So we get to Exodus 33, verse 1. I don't know why this isn't working. Uh, John, can you just flick it on? That would be great. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham. I will give it to your descendants. So the Israelites finally get into the promised land through Joshua. That's a whole other story. The promised land, notice how it's depicted, if you know the story. It's depicted as a second Eden. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And God gives them these laws to govern how they're to inhabit the land in such a way that they can be a light in the world, that they can be a blessing to the world, that through the way they live and act and love and serve, God can usher in his recreation plan. What could go wrong? Do they do it? No. It gets worse. And so if you know the Old Testament, you get to this chapter in 1 Samuel where Israel's enemies have captured the ark of God. That's where God's presence dwelt with his people in the land, the manifest presence of God. So Israel's in the land, but God isn't anymore. It's like, ah, how are we going to get them all together in the same place at the same time? Samuel is born into Israel's story. He's the last judge, a priest and a prophet 
who eventually anoints a young shepherd boy who's been busy looking after sheep on the side of a hill as the king of Israel, the one who will finally establish Israel as a kingdom under God. And for a while it does really well. And then David has his moments too. And then under his son Solomon, a temple is built, a permanent dwelling place for the presence of God. And you know what happens? They dedicate the temple and the Spirit of God fills the Holy of Holies. It's like a proto-Pentecost. There's a clue to where we're going. All the priests are wiped out. They can't stand up. That's what I secretly pray every time I go to an ordination service in the Church of England. Um, Wouldn't that be fun? Um, I probably shouldn't have told you that. Eden, in other words, has been recovered. Here we are. If you go and read the description of the temple, it's designed and built in such a way that as you entered in, you're thinking, this is Eden. Eden has been restored here in this place. They built it literally where they think they think Garden of Eden was. God, once again, has a permanent home. Surely, surely this time, surely. No. Again, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know Solomon decides to do all sorts of weird things. He introduces all kinds of pagan worship into Israel. After his death, the kingdom is torn in two. You end up with the northern part, what's known at that time as Israel. They're so wicked and full of unbelief and rebellion that to, to the covenant that God actually wipes them out. And we're left with the second half, the southern part, Judah, where Jerusalem is. And there's some good news and there's some bad news. But eventually they're taken captive into Babylon, what's known as the exile. And then we have a whole load of other things happen. Eventually, Nehemiah comes home and he rebuilds the city walls and they get back to getting things on track. But before too long, the temple's torn down. The people are scattered yet again. And so we come to the end of the Old Testament and we find ourselves in the prophets. How did I do? And through the prophets... God starts to speak of one who will come with healing in his wings. One who will restore Israel permanently. Give them new hearts so they can truly know and serve God. We look backwards, as Laura taught us, through the scriptures and we see that that is Jesus Christ. They didn't know that at the time, but they had an expectation that one would emerge from within the people of God, that God would raise someone up, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God. We knew it would be a descendant of Eve. We knew it would be part of Abraham's seed. No one expected it to be Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that next week. Remember the covenant why would God promise someone? Why, why this guarantee? Well, he's not forgotten his covenant promise. I will be to you as I should be. Whether or not you are as you should be to me. Put simply, God becomes the answer to the problem. He fulfills both sides of the covenant promise. Where Israel cannot be, Faithful to its covenant promises, Jesus comes as the true Israel, steps in to Israel's vocation, takes on the entire sin of the world in order that that covenant promise and the promise of God's world being made new through them could be fulfilled. It's amazing. It's amazing. The binding covenant commitment that God makes to Abraham all those years ago is fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. 
and it has implications not only for how you and I respond to God, but actually how we live as his people in the world. Notice in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, it says this. Turn with me in your Bibles if you've got it in front of you. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And then we get into the epistles. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, it says this. Now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You, you are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Paul is making sense of Jesus Christ in light of this Abrahamic covenant. What it means to me and to you is that I am called to live in that promise. And I'm called to live out that promise. I'm called to live in that promise and I'm called to live out that promise. What it means is that God has not given up on you. What it means is God will never give up on you. Me, your neighbours, your friends, your family, your children, your loved ones, the person over the street that does your head in. God has made a binding covenant commitment to Abraham and to everybody else, all the nations through him, and it's still binding, but it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, which means it's now possible for you and I to be children of the promise, not just to wait for it to be fulfilled, but to enter into it because it has been fulfilled, and to take on all the inheritance of Jesus Christ that he says is yours and mine. Why? Because we're his sons and daughters. Actually, we're his brothers and his sisters. We're true children of the promise, ladies and gentlemen. It's the best news And at Christmas, we say yes again to the incarnated Jesus Christ who comes to fulfill our side of the covenant. It should leave us breathless and humbled at the cross. And every morning waking up and going, thank you, God, that your mercy triumphs over judgment, that your grace is new each morning. And say, I'm going to live in that promise for me. So that I can be to you what I should be. Because you were to me what you promised you would be. But not only that, that I'm going to open my front door. And I'm going to walk out into the world. And on behalf of you, in your name Jesus, and in the power of your spirit, I am going to be to the world what I need to be. So that people can discover that you're the faithful God who still fulfills the promise of that covenant. I want to finish with a story that I think sums this up beautifully and just gives you a mental picture. Some of you will remember in 1989, there was a very, very significant earthquake in Armenia. 8.2 on the Richter scale. 47,000 people die. There's a story of a dad and a son. You may have heard it. The son's called Armand. Every day, Armand's father would take him to school in the car. And as he got out of the car each day, that Armand recalls the story of, of the dad says to him every day, Armand, I will always be there for you. He said it every single day. I say to my kids all the time, guys, I love you. And they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you love us. Why do you say it all the time? Because I never want you to be in any doubt, Right? Armand's dad did the same. He did it the morning that the earthquake hit. He hears that there's an earthquake in his hometown 
obviously experiences it, duh. And so what does he do? He goes straight to the school. And he finds that the school is flattened, it's rubble. And with nothing but his bare hands, Armand's dad dug and dug and dug. Everyone else was stood around him apparently saying, what's the point? There's no one going to be alive in that building. They're dead, they're dead, they're dead. He looked up at them and he said, you can grumble or you can help me lift those bricks. Some did for a bit. He dug for 38 hours straight. And eventually he heard a muffled sound. And he pulled back this piece of rubble and he yells into it, Armand! And from the darkness he hears a trembling, shaking voice, Papa! And then all these other voices start crying out. They rescued 14 of the 33 students in his class that day. Armand said to his classmates while they waited, my father's going to come because he said he'd always be there for me. And then he says as they come out, he says, see, I told you, I told you my father wouldn't forget us. If you want a picture of what God does for you in Jesus Christ, what he does for me is he enters into the mess, the rubble of our life, and he peels back every stone until he sets us free. And what he says to the church is, now will you go into the world, imagine it like an earthquake zone, and you go get people out. Because then they will know that I am the God of Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Jesus, and you. And that's why we do CAP, and Food Bank, and everything else we do. Because that is how God is committed to redeeming and reconciling all things unto himself. It's always been through his people. Why? Because we're very good. Let's stand.